0: System testing, and I've heard about people testing, but last couple of days I've developed a new, idea, new doctrine of moving testing. And it was 3 o'clock this morning that I finally crawled into bed after uh, getting back from uh, uh, Groton, where we, uh, went, we went down there about 8 o'clock last night with the movers and finally got about two-thirds of our household goods in a storage garage down there so I'm a little punchy. I spent much of today trying to find things that the packers should have packed. At one point, uh, I felt a box that was a little heavy. It was labeled office lamps. Now you would think that if you had two brain cells that rubbed together, even, even occasionally, that if you had a big heavy box that can take two lamps, a computer, a monitor, a keyboard, a mouse, all the wiring for the whole thing, that what you would put on it is not lamps, but computer. (laughs) Fortunately, that box with the lamps in it did not go to storage and did end up in the right place so that I finally did get my computer hooked up uh, this afternoon. Um, But other things like the computer, the paper for the printer, I had a whole ream of paper, Lord knows where that is. I had a brand new box of transparency film that is designed for that printer, and that's in a box somewhere. And that's just a small flavor of how things are going. So we really need to be praying at prayer meeting that, uh, that we get our house sold in Houston very soon so that we can get out of this uh, tiny little place and into a place where we can get it, I can get everything out and feel like I'm functioning. I sort of feel like a doctor who's going into surgery with a Boy Scout knife and a piece of twine. So uh, when we get into it tonight, I had originally planned to, um, uh, in my foresight, I knew that problems can come up. So we were supposed to get here last Thursday, and I made sure that I packed in my briefcase uh, printouts from my computer studies I had done at the beginning of John and Galatians and everything else. But when it came to James, I was going to start that on Wednesday night. So there would be plenty of time to get everything up and running. <laughs> Famous last words. So we're just uh, sort of going off the cuff tonight to see what, what survives in the top of my brain after a long night last night. So all of this testing is the way that our faith matures. There's no other way than to go through testing. And uh, what we're going to discover as we get into this verse probably next week is that there's uh, two kinds of testing, roughly. Testing that involves adversity and testing that involves prosperity. Most people I know say, Lord, I'm just waiting for those prosperity tests. <laughs> it's the adversity tests that are tough. Now, adversity we cannot escape. Adversity is outside pressure. On the soul. Adversity comes in all kinds of different categories and shapes and forms. Uh, When we yield to that with our sin nature, the result of that is stress in the soul. And we can avoid stress through the use of problem-solving devices that God has outlined in Scripture. And we will get into that next week. In fact, I want to lay some background for that uh, during the next two or three weeks. So we will probably just discuss The whole concept of adversity and stress and cover what I call the ten stress busters. Uh, The world out there tells you how to manage your stress. The Bible tells you how you can avoid stress completely. So we're going to uh, get into that as some background. So it will probably be a while before we get through the first three or four verses of James 1. Verse 4 says, And let endurance have its perfect result, which is a lousy translation, we'll find out that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So there's an important prayer promise. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man he is unstable in all his ways. And there we see that the, the person who's not applying doctrine in the midst of adversity isn't just unstable in some ways, but they're unstable in every way. So you have two options in life. Since uh, Job tells us that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, we know that we cannot avoid difficulty, hardship, trouble, and adversity in life. And to think that you can is to live in a dream world. So you have two options. You can either live in the midst of that adversity and convert that adversity to stress in your soul and where you're living in carnality and you're going to be in unstable in all your ways or you can learn how to use what God has given us in grace, all the tremendous spiritual assets he's given us. You can take the time to learn what they are and then work on implementing them so you can grow to spiritual maturity and in that way avoid the instability that comes from... Uh, converting adversity into stress. We begin with our little introduction this morning. We're going to start back in the first verse and just focus on that tonight. First word in the epistle is James. In the original Greek, it is Yaakovos. See, this is not the epistle of James. This is the epistle of Jacob. Jacob is a good Hebrew word. And we have to ask ourselves the question, because we're not told here in the first verse, just who is this James. There are four different James mentioned in the Bible. So we ask James who, and we'll find out if this overhead, how well this, this works with my this, this oddly shaped overhead in my rectangular over, overhead. Okay, number one, Scripture talks about James the son of Zebedee. Mark 1:19. He's the brother of John the Apostle, who we are studying his gospel on Sunday morning. Uh, Passages there: Mark 3:17 and Acts 12:1 through 2. Also Mark 1:19. Those were the two sons of thunder, James and John, the Apostle James and his brother, the Apostle John. But it was not James the son of Zebedee because James was martyred under Herod Agrippa the first. That's recorded in Acts 12.2 and that took place not too long after the birth of the church probably in the late 30's. Jesus was crucified somewhere around 33 A.D. I'm not positive on that date. There's a lot of discrepancy and I haven't studied it through as much as I would like to to really nail it down whether it was 31, 32 or 33. I think probably 32 but just we'll just say around 33 for now. And... Um, James, the brother of John, was martyred about 38, 39, 40, somewhere in there. So, he died too soon to have been the author of this epistle. The second option is James, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew 10.3, also Mark 3.18, or Matthew 3.18. I can't read my own writing. Uh, He's the... um, uh, he is a minor disciple. We don't learn much about him. We find his name listed a few times, but he's never mentioned in the Scriptures other than a few brief, uh, brief mentions in the Gospels. So too little is known about him, and it was probably not James, the son of Alphaeus. The third option is James, the father of Judas, the disciple. This is not Judas Iscariot. This is the other Judas. There were two Judases uh, among the disciples. And once again, he's mentioned in Luke 6.16, but too little is known about him. He was probably not the author of this epistle. The fourth choice is the half-brother of the Lord, mentioned in Galatians 1.19. If you turn in your Bible, hold your place here in James, turn to Matthew 13.55. Matthew 13.55 We find that Mary, the mother of our Lord, had other children. It always amazes me that, especially if you come out of a Roman Catholic background, you always talk about the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary stopped being the Virgin Mary after she had Jesus. I don't know how a woman who had six or more children could continually be called the Virgin Mary is beyond me. But the Roman Catholics have an odd way of handling this. And that's why I wanted you to look at this passage. Mark 13, uh, 55 reads... Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James? So, listed first, that would mean that James is the oldest of the Lord's uh, brothers, half-brothers according to, to the humanity of Christ. James and Joseph, and Joseph Jr. and Simon and Judas. Verse 56 says, and his sisters. So, that implies that he had at least two sisters. We don't know how many. So, there, Joseph and Mary together had at least six children, uh, and Mary, of course, alone had the Lord Jesus Christ. His sisters, are they not all with us? So, Mary had other children. The, the uh, Roman Catholics teach a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary, which says that they take these ver- these words here for brother and sister, which are the standard everyday Greek words, autophos, autophay for brother and sister, and they uh, say, no, those really mean that really means a cousin. That really wasn't his brother or sister. We we he, because Mary just couldn't have had others because that would violate our our doctrine. So there were other other brothers. James, uh, Jesus was the firstborn of Mary in Luke two seven, which implies that uh, she had others. Uh, Joseph, the scripture says, had no sexual relations with Mary until after the birth of Jesus. Jesus but then after that they had at least 6 more children James being the oldest now I want you to notice as we go back to James chapter 1 that this is this is very important because James has the same lineage as Jesus that means that through both mother and father his lineage can be traced back to king david he is in the royal line so james is a jewish aristocrat just as jesus is not only does he have the right to to claim jewish aristocracy but he is the half brother of the lord he can name drop like no one else in history can name drop now i often wonder what it would have been like to have grown up in that home with jesus now i never had any brothers and sisters for which i'm grateful. But I understand, I understand from from people who have had brothers and sisters, especially older ones that are smarter and better looking and run faster and jump taller buildings, that life is really rough when you have an older brother or sister that is pretty close to perfect. Can you imagine what it would have been like if you had had an older brother who was perfect? That must have been really rough. Why can't you do it like Jesus does it? It's no wonder that none of the other brothers and sisters trusted Him as Savior until after the resurrection. They were mad at Him their whole life. They had to live up to perfection. So James, the Lord's brother, is the fourth option and that's who wrote this epistle. But we learn something about James in this because he doesn't... Name drop. He doesn't mention that he's the Lord's half-brother. He doesn't mention any of these other things. So that must mean that James is a man of humility, a man who is uh, truly teachable, a man who is grace-oriented and doctrinally oriented, a man who, who is not going to focus on the, the physical aspect because James realizes that physical birth means nothing. You know, if we go back into different people's genealogies, we might discover all sorts of incredible things. They might have all sorts of ancestors of of wealth and privilege and position. But physical birth doesn't mean anything. As far as the spiritual life goes, physical birth gives no physical advantage or spiritual advantage. second principle we can state here is that there are no assets related to physical birth whereby man can gain the approbation of God. No matter who you are, you have the same problem that we all have. You're born a sinner. Scripture says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because we're all born sinners, we're born with negative righteousness, relative righteousness. Every single human being has a righteousness problem. Scripture says, All the works of righteousness that that, um, all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in God's sight. And as long as God has perfect righteousness, there is a barrier between God and man that cannot be breached by anything that man does. We cannot do anything that will gain the approval of God. We can't impress God with anything. It has to be done by God. And God performed that by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, and God the Father imputed to him on the cross all of our sins, when God the Father looked down on Jesus Christ, his righteousness and his justice were satisfied. Because God's righteousness and justice were satisfied, this is known as the doctrine of propitiation. Because God was propitiated on the cross, we can now have a relationship with Him based on faith alone in Christ alone. And at the moment of salvation, God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, here we are down here, we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we are perfectly righteous, we still have a sin nature. And there isn't anything an unbeliever can do that you're not capable of doing. In fact, some of the world's worst people are Christians. And I always get a kick out of it when you talk to some people. They'll say, well, I remember the first time I saw one. It was a Christian Yellow Pages. We're going to do business with so-and-so because they're a Christian. We're going to open it up and we're going to find a mechanic to work on the car because they're a Christian. Well, listen, I've met some Christians that are some of the worst people in the world. And I've met some unbelievers that are very, very honorable so just because somebody is a believer doesn't mean they're automatically going to, have, going to have integrity and virtue in their lives. We all are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment of our salvation. And God's perfect righteousness looks down and sees that perfect righteousness that we have, and it generates a pipeline between God's perfect righteousness and Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness in us. And it's down that grace pipeline that all of our logistical grace blessings flow. Now, logistics is the is the word describing supply in the military, supply for a person's needs. We have the passage in um, uh, that probably come out good on the tape. All those sirens. <laughs> um, well, the passage in Matthew 6 that seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousnesses, and all these things shall be added unto you. And many people think that verse applies to the Christian life, that if I would just seek, uh, the righteousness of God, then God will then bless me with all these things. And that's not the correct interpretation of that passage. The issue, of that passage is really talking about salvation. Because at the moment of salvation, we are given the perfect righteousness of God. And if you remember that context in the Sermon on the the Mount there, in in, uh, Matthew chapter 6, the Lord is talking about not worrying about the basic needs in your life. Take no thought for your food or your clothing. Look out on the fields. No one was uh, ever arrayed like these. And he goes on to talk about how God knows all the birds of the air and takes care of them. And if God's going to do that for all the birds in the sky, then God, of course, is going to take care of the needs of a believer. And these are all the basic life support needs of the believer. Food, shelter, clothing, the air we breathe. All of these things come under the category of God's logistical grace blessings for the believer. And they go to the believer whether he's a carnal believer, whether he's a spiritual believer, whether he's a growing believer, whether he's a backsliding believer, no matter what his condition is, because he always possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ, God's righteousness flows down to him that, to understand this is to understand grace this was a problem that we're going to see on Sunday morning in our study of Galatians it's really great to study uh, Galatians and James together in fact in many, uh, many Bible colleges and seminaries they teach the two together unfortunately most of the professors don't have a clue as to uh, how to handle some of the uh, difficult passages and what appear to them to be contradictions between the uh, two epistles Galatians, if you uh, remember, was the uh, book that, the, that Martin Luther was studying when he uh, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and came to an understanding that ju- of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that man is justified because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Because we'll go right back to this concept, the Greek word dikaios for justice is also the word for righteousness. And at the moment of salvation, when God imputes to the believer, at that instant, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, God then declares that the judge at the uh, Supreme Court of he- Heaven declares this person to be justified. It is a legal concept. It is not an experiential concept. This means that you don't necessarily feel anything at the moment of salvation. Salvation has nothing to do with how you feel Salvation has nothing to do with the fact that now you're going to be a much better person because you're still the same lousy rotten sinner two seconds after you were saved that you were two seconds before you were saved. And because you don't have any doctrine to make any difference in your life, you're still going to be committing the same sins you were committing before you were saved. If anything's going to make a difference, it's going to be the doctrine that you learn afterwards that the Holy Spirit uses to bring you to spiritual maturity. So the person is justified... By faith alone in Christ alone. That's the doctrine that Martin Luther exegeted from Galatians and kicked off the Protestant Reformation on October thirty-first, 1517. But when Martin Luther came to the epistle of James, he just couldn't exegete it correctly. He had some real problems, as we'll see when we come to uh, the second chapter of James, that it seemed to indicate that a man was justified by his works, not by faith alone. And Martin Luther couldn't, uh, couldn't reconcile that with Galatians, so he doubted that James should be in the canon of Scripture. In fact, he called it a right strawy epistle, which to translate that into more up-to-date language, he just thought it was a, an epistle of straw, that there wasn't anything of much value in James. But I think that James is one of the most profound little epistles in all of the New Testament, And the writer is writing it specifically to challenge the uh, believers he's writing to to keep pressing on to spiritual maturity. No matter how tough it gets, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult the trials may be that you face or the hardships, you have to keep pushing on. This brings up one of the key words that we're going to study again and again in this epistle. And that is the Greek word, hupa, H-U-P-O-M-O I think that's really M-E M-E-N-E-S Hupomenes which means to persist to endure to persevere if you have a King James version I think it translates this in uh, uh, verse 3 knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience it's not patience it's not macrothemia which is the word for patience. It's hupomenes, which means uh, endurance, persistence, sticking with it. As my mother used to say, stick-to-itiveness. Hanging in there in the Christian life, coming to Bible class, even when you're tired and you don't feel like it, and you've had a hard day and a hard week, because that's just part of how Satan tries to discourage us from keeping our priorities together. Bible doctrine should be the highest priority in your life if you're going to press on to spiritual maturity. And that's our number one goal as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So James is concerned about challenging every believer to press on to spiritual maturity no matter what happens. so the theme of this letter is going to be persistence in the Christian life. Hanging in there. Persevering. We're going to take a little time to go through the, this epistle just to get an overview. Uh, one of the things that you discover if you read very many commentaries on, on uh, James is that very, very few uh, scholars and Bible students even have a clue as to what this epistle is all about. You can go to almost every commentary you have, you look at, and it's one of the things that I discovered when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, is you always think that the commentaries are going to have the answers. Nine times out of ten, the guy who's writing the commentary is skipping the problem passage because he doesn't have any more of an idea what it means than you do. And one of the things that uh, we used to do in Hebrew class, was we'd have to write exegetical papers, and our procedure was to, to read it through in the Hebrew and exegete it and write the paper. And the last thing in a long series of tests, after you do your word studies and your grammatical studies, your theological studies, was to look at a commentary. And what you discovered was 99 times out of 100 you put more data into your exegetical paper than you could find in any commentary. And what we were taught was to be able to write and exegete so that we would never need to look at a commentary. But when you look at these commentaries on James, almost every one of them says that this is like the, the uh, New Testament book of Proverbs. There's no real uh, unity to the epistle of James at all. It's just a collection of uh, different uh, points, uh, for the Christian life to encourage believers to uh, walk in obedience that there 's no real unifying theme to the epistle uh, that James wrote, and one of the problems that that engenders is if you don 't have that proper overview of James and understand that it has a very tight unity, then you 're going to end up misinterpreting several critical passages in this verse and that, i mean this, uh, in this epistle and that 's why people Uh, get so confused over a number of different passages here I I don't know about you but when I was a kid uh, we used to have jigsaw puzzles in the house and I know a lot of families have two or three jigsaw puzzles somebody gave them for Christmas and they stuck back in the closet somewhere and in the middle of a snowstorm, I guess you get the jigsaw puzzle out and you try to work it well what would you do what you generally do is you sit there and you look at the top of that jigsaw puzzle right? and you look at that picture that gives you that overview and you're going to have hundreds of pieces out here on the table but what's going to give meaning to each and every piece of that puzzle is the overview and just think of that, each piece of that puzzle as a different detail in a book of the Bible and what gives that meaning is that overall picture so you pick up a piece and it's got a little blue in it and a little green in it and a little red in it and then you look over here at this overview and you try to see how it fits well what would happen if your kids in their haste of putting the puzzles up switched the to box tops <laughs> so now you've got this jigsaw puzzle and you've got this piece that you're trying to figure out what it means and you're trying to make it fit in the wrong picture, you're going to really end up with a lot of trouble and confusion. And that's exactly what's happened in the, in the book of James. You look at passages like over in James chapter 2 when it's talking about uh, faith and works. And, and verse, 20 says, or verse 18 says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. If you think that this whole epistle is just a collection of different important uh, uh, commands or, or, or exhortations to different, different people uh, who may or may not be believers, then you're going to take that to be addressed to, a believer, to an unbeliever and have something to do with uh, salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. Another verse where people get all screwed up is in the last chapter, and we talked about this uh, somewhat and exegeted it briefly when I was here at Christmas. When you get into the passage that talks about praying for the sick and anointing them with oil. And I remember um, you always have these. The, the first week or month that you're in a church as a new pastor, it's always interesting what happens to people in the church. Weird things. Y'all just get ready. Weird things are going to happen. Um, I was at this church about three weeks. I had I'd worked years before, knew of the, the wife uh, of this guy. Uh, at a Christian camp I had worked at, and her family went to church with my folks. And she was having a miscarriage. They called me up at 11 o'clock at night, wanted me to come down and anoint her with oil. I hadn't had time to teach them doodly squat. I think I'd been pastor there for about two weeks. And um, I hadn't had time to do that, so I called up the deacons, and we went down there, and I... uh, um, you know, that's really not the right time to start exegeting the passage in front of them. So we went ahead and splattered a little Wesson oil around and, 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 uh, and prayed. But it's the prayer that is efficacious, as that, that passage says, not the oil. That James is not advocating using oil for medicinal purposes or to, to jazz up your prayer life or anything else. So when we get there, we'll find out what that means. And then there's verse 16 where it talks about confessing. Uh, your sins one to another. And you always have somebody who wants to get up in front of the church and start confessing their sins. What that does, it gets a load of guilt off of their back and gives everybody else something to uh, get involved with a little mental attitude sins. You know, it may be envy, it may be jealousy, uh, whatever it may be. It always gets everybody else in the congregation involved in their sins. So uh, that's not what that's talking about. It's not talking about public confession of sin or anything like that. So we have all kinds of different passages in James that have lent themselves over the years to uh, distortion. And there's always one, like I think I would have, today there was a time or yesterday, if somebody had come up to me and said, now now you're just having all these these troubles here, you need to count it all joy, I think I probably would have practiced a right hook on them. (laughs) Because, um, you know, that's the last thing you want to hear when things are going tough. But you've got to understand the whole context of this passage, that the way that James uh, constructs these first uh, or verses 2 through 4, the, the, uh, you find out how you can do the command. The command is stated first, and you find out how you can do that and what follows. And it's, and it's based upon spiritual growth and having a certain amount, certain amount of doctrine in your soul. So, as we go on with this, I want to just cover a little bit about James... And its overall structure. Now the key verse. To understanding the structure of James. Is found in verse 19. James 1.19. What we discover. We examine James. Is that it has. A nice structure to it. A perfect structure to it. It has an introduction over here. From one 1-1 one to one eighteen, and then it states the outline of the book. Now James is—we call it an epistle, but James really doesn't have all the characteristics of an epistle. It has an introduction, much in some ways like Paul's, but usually an epistle you get something like grace to you and peace. You get a few things like greetings to so and so. You get a salutation at the end of the end of the letter or a closing at the end of the letter that that. Uh, mentions greetings to different people. There may be some personal notes added to it. You don't find any of this in, in James. Uh, James probably wrote this very early. I, he was the, uh, uh, by 45 AD, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and worked closely with, uh, with John, the apostle, and with Peter. They were the two apostles associated with James, though he was not an apostle And we'll discover that he's called an apostle. But just to clear this up, you have two kinds of apostles in the New Testament. The first kind of apostle, or first of all, the key to understanding the word apostle is it's somebody who is commissioned by one group to perform a task. Historically, the word was used in the 5th century B.C. among the uh, admirals in Athens. When they were involved in the Peloponnesian Wars, uh, the the Spartans discovered a way that they could get to the uh, Athenian admirals and bribe them. So it became common practice for the the, uh, uh, military powers to get together. When they were getting ready to send a fleet out, they would wait to the last possible, possible minute, call in five or six uh, of their admirals, and then have a uh, uh, then just choose at the last minute who would be the admiral of the fleet, and then they would take them out under guard and put them in a boat and send them out to their ship, and then they would go to out to fight, and that way they would avoid the whole problem of, um, uh, of bribery. So it was somebody who was commissioned and given authority by one group of people to perform a task. Now you have two different kinds of apostles in the New Testament. You have those who have the spiritual gift of apostle who were the tw- the 11 disciples, the 12 minus Judas Iscariot leaves you 11, plus the apostle Paul. Those are the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Matthias was not chosen as a disciple, as we'll see as we start as, as an apostle, as we'll see in our study uh, this coming Sunday morning that when the um, uh, disciples got together and Peter came up with the crazy idea that we need to fill the uh, ranks with one more. Nobody said 12 was a perfect number. Who told, who told Peter they needed another one? That we're going to fill the ranks and so they uh, drew straws and they chose Matthias who's never heard from again. And uh, uh, Peter forgot the whole principle that spiritual gifts are given by God the Holy Spirit not by the drawing of lots. And so... Uh, Uh, That was just an exercise in futility. A spiritual gift. Christ is the one who commissions them. Paul continually appealed to the fact that Jesus Christ had appeared to him in person on the road to Damascus and had commissioned him with a task. So the commissioning agent for an apostle was Jesus Christ and they were sent on a task in relation to founding the church. Remember we saw the passage in Ephesians 2.20. This last Sunday morning, uh, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Then there's a second group, and this is what I would call lowercase apostle. These were folks who were sent out from a local church. So the commissioning body here is a local church, not Jesus Christ. People like Barnabas, Junius, Andronicus, James, um, who wrote this epistle and others were not commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and given the spiritual gift of apostle. This was just the everyday use of the word apostle. That Apostello is the Greek verb meaning to send out. And it was just used in an everyday sense to refer to somebody who was sent out and given a particular task. So uh, these other people did not have the spiritual gift of apostle, but they were sent out by one local church, usually sent on some kind of a mission related to, uh, to ministry and uh, carrying the gospel to different parts of the Roman Empire. So James was not an apostle, but he served with two apostles, and it's under their authority that his epistle goes out, under the authority of the uh, Peter and John. So James sends this out, and it's basically a lecture. He's got an extended congregation beyond his church in Jerusalem, and he's going to put together a three-point sermon and send it out to be read to those congregations. And it's got a perfect structure as, as given in verse 19. This is, remember high school English when you had to write a thesis sentence? And that thesis sentence contained the basic elements of the rest of the paper. That's why you make sure your kids learn all the elements of English and grammar, when they're growing up, is because that is important if they're ever going to read and understand God's word in their life. Here's your thesis sentence. This you know, my beloved brethren. And that's a key word over and over again. He refers to people, to those he's addressing as his brethren. And that's a technical word for other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. And he says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So there's three points. If you're going to persist in the Christian life to spiritual maturity, then there's three things you better get control of. You better get control of your ears. You better make doctrine the highest priority of your life. And you better be quick to hear. Always ready to go to Bible class. Be quick to hear. But hearing doesn't involve just the academic learning of doctrine. We were, talked about this a little bit on... Uh, Sunday morning. When the pastor teacher communicates doctrine to the believer, it comes over here into his soul and human spirit. Only a a believer, because he possesses a human spirit, can understand doctrine. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says that the natural man or the soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Because they're foolishness to Him. So the unbeliever can't... Doesn't have a clue. Have, have you have you've ever noticed... When you sit down and try to explain something... From a divine viewpoint framework... To an unbeliever... It's like talking to a wall. They can't understand doctrine. It's beyond them. They do not have the capacity to... Because they do not have a human spirit. The believer who's used First 1 John 1, nine And is filled with the Holy Spirit... And that phrase filled with the holy spirit in the greek is in e n p n e u m a t i that is, this is the preposition in with a dative or instrumental ending in the greek means by means of the holy spirit so you're not filled with the, you can use the you can use the phrase filled with In two different ways. You can say, fill my cup with water. There you would be using a dative of content or maybe a genitive of content. You're talking about what is going inside the cup. When we're talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about our bodies being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a genitive of content here. It's a dative. It's a dative of means. And it means that we are being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. But what's going in? What's the content? And the parallel passage is found in Colossians 3.16 where Paul says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, we don't have time to go over and do an exegesis of Ephesians chapter 5.17 and following and Colossians 3.16 and following. But if you go back in your own personal study and you look at what follows those verses, it's the same thing. The results of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit And the results of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you are that you will uh, sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs speaking the truth to one another in love that uh, husbands will love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives will submit to your husbands. Children will uh, respect their parents and obey their parents and honor their parents. Servants will serve their masters and masters will treat their servants, their slaves, with honor. That all follows what? Doctrine in the soul. In Colossians, it tells us the emphasis is on the doctrine. In Ephesians, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. These are the two power options in your life as a believer in the church age. The filling of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine. They work together. You don't have one without the other. The charismatics are the ones who want to emphasize the Holy Spirit without doctrinal content. In some churches, you get such an emphasis on, on doctrine and no filling of the Holy Spirit. They don't have a clue how to get the filling of the Holy Spirit. You'd be amazed how few churches today understand that you get filling with the Holy Spirit through 1 John 1.9. So you are filled with, by, with doctrine by means of the Holy Spirit. Your human spirit enables your soul, the mentality of your soul, to understand Bible doctrine. And then it goes down here and becomes gnosis. This is the Greek word for knowledge. And that's in what is called the nous in the Greek, NOUS, or just the mind. This is the left lobe of the mentality of the soul. Then it is transferred by faith when you believe it, the Holy Spirit transfers it by faith over to the right lobe of your soul where it becomes epignosis or full knowledge this is where it begins to circulate through your thinking where you can apply it where the Holy Spirit can bring it back to mind where it becomes a part and parcel of your thinking as you assimilate it in the heart the cardia cardia heart refers to The right lobe, or the innermost part of the thinking of the soul. You'll always hear some idiot Christian who's never been taught well say that there's a difference between head faith and heart faith. And doesn't that sound so good? And that a lot of people are going to miss heaven by just 18 inches because they had a head faith and not a heart faith. And we're going to learn over and over and over again as we study through the Gospel of John. That faith is not an emotion. That's how they take heart. It's not some kind of feeling. Faith is something that is directed to a proposition. It's directed towards knowledge. You believe something. You have something of content to wrap your faith around. You know something and you believe something. And because you believe it, because you agree that it's true, you rest on it. I don't know if you're like me. I don't thrill a whole lot to balancing my checkbook. And for years, I never could get a checkbook to balance within dollars. We're not talking a penny or two. We're talking dollars. Finally, I learned how to do it. And I started making sure that I recorded all my checks correctly. Never had anything wrong. You know, numbers just aren't my thing. And uh, every month, I'll sit down. And I'll get out my my check my, my checkbook and get the bank statement and I'll reconcile it, and make sure all the numbers are right, and I'll add everything up. And for the past two or three years, just about every month it balances to the penny, the first time. Now, do I once I total up all those numbers and I check everything out, and I agree that I have correctly computed the balance. Of my checking account and everything equals and I agree that my number and the bank's number are the same do I keep doing it do I keep working on it only if I was a fool I relax I rest I put the pen down and I stop working see that's faith faith agrees with something it agrees with the proposition that salvation is in no other name other than Jesus Christ Believe on the joy of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When you agree with that with your mind and say, that's true, I believe that, you lay your pen down and you rest, you're not going to work for your salvation anymore because you know it's accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. So faith has to do with knowledge and the Christian life continually is renewing your mind. You have to start here renewing your news because all knowledge starts with academic knowledge. No matter what the field of study is, You start with academic knowledge. And then it becomes epinosis. So this is the process of growth in the spiritual life. And James is continuing. You've got to persist in this. That's his theme. You've got to be quick to hear. And hearing implies doing. That's going to be the thrust of verses 19 through 27. Hearing implies application. Don't just listen and go home and say, boy, wasn't that great? Didn't I just learn a lot and I got a lot of intellectual stimulation? But there's things, there's challenging things that we're going to learn in this epistle. There are about 53 imperatives in this epistle. Those are commands, mandates from God for every believer that if you're going to grow to maturity, this is what you must do in the spiritual life. Don't go home and say, boy, that was a nice lesson and then just act like you never heard anything. That's the thrust. And then there's going to be a point of application with the um, materialistic usher in chapter 2. This is the guy that's, uh, he's the good Christian and he's, he's serving in church and he's going to seat everybody. And he sees somebody come in the back and they're just dressed to the nines. It's obvious that this guy is a very successful businessman and has all the money. So he makes sure that he gets the best seat in the house. And then when the poor guy comes in who hadn't had a bath in a couple of days, who just came in off the street, he makes sure he probably sits way back up there in the back on one of those old slave benches so nobody notices him. And James says that this this person has not done what he has heard. He's not grace-oriented. He's not doctrinally oriented. And then he's going to come back in verse 14. And just as he talked about the concepts of hearing the word, and doing them now he's going to talk about faith and works this isn't saving faith there are three stages in the spiritual life stage one takes place at the cross in a moment in time when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ at that You can't do anything to lose it. You, two days later, you can say, you can renounce Jesus Christ. won't do you any good. You're still a believer. No matter what sin you commit, you're still going to be saved. Because billions and billions of years ago, in eternity past, God in His omniscience knew every single sin you were ever going to commit. And every one of those sins was paid for by Jesus Christ. If you think in your arrogance that you can commit a sin that Jesus didn't pay for, then what you're saying is there was something you're doing right now that you surprised God. God didn't know about it a billion years ago and God didn't make provision for it. But God did, so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue, you know, it always strikes me as, 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 bad, as so sad that evangelists always want to make sin the issue. Sin is not the issue. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin. The issue is your faith In Jesus Christ. So phase one of salvation is justification when we are saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is the spiritual life. It has ups and downs. Some people go way down here and become loser believers. Others come up and gradually go up. And this is phase two known as progressive sanctification. Where we are continually by taking in doctrine being saved from the power of sin in our lives on a day to day basis and then phase 3 is glorification which is our salvation from the presence of sin when we are face to face with the Lord in heaven and where we no longer have a sin nature we no longer have our human body now when you talk about faith and justification on faith to to a believer in phase 2 what you are really talking about is vindication you see when you trust Christ as your Savior nobody sees anything It's something that took place inside of you. Now, five or ten years later, you may do something as a result of applying doctrine and growing to spiritual maturity that gives evidence, it's a vindication of your salvation. You may not. We're going to get into... This is a critical issue in the whole lordship salvation debate. And the issue is that people today want to quantify what faith is and what fruit is and what evidence is. Scripture says that all you have to do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to this passage, it's going to talk about Abraham and Abraham's justification. And what we'll discover is that uh, the illustration it uses is when he offered up Isaac uh, on on Mount Moriah. But that happened about 50 years after Abraham was saved. So we know that this passage has nothing to do with salvation. And then we'll talk about Rahab the prostitute. And then we'll shift gears into... into, um, the third stage of the book. I won't try to wind back to, to my outline. The first is your intro. Second, first major section has to do with hearing. Be quick to hear. The second major section is chapter 3, and it's slow to speak. It has to do with sins of the tongue. And if you're a believer and you're going to grow to maturity, you're going to have to deal with those sins of the tongue. Gossip, maligning, vindictiveness, hatred, all these various things you're going to have to deal with. Sins of the tongue in chapter three. Then in chapter four, we're going to deal with the fourth area, which is slow to anger, mental attitude sins, and how the worst sins that you can ever that you can imagine are mental attitude sins. You know, if you poll most Christians, you say what are the worst sins? They're going to say adultery, murder, uh, stealing, rape, maybe a few others, but they're overt sins. If you look at Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs uh, 11. I can't remember the exact reference. There's seven things. Six things the Lord abominates. Hey, C.A. 7 are an abomination to Him. And if you look at those, only one is an overt sin. The rest are mental attitude sins or sins of the tongue. So James goes right to the heart of the issue. It's not your overt sins that you have to deal with if you're going to make spiritual maturity. It's your mental attitude sins. It's the sins of the tongue. And then, when we come to chapter 5, around verse 7, we're going to come back to the main topic again, the main theme which is perseverance, patience, and endurance. That didn't cover the glass all the way. Patience. Be patient, therefore, brethren. You too be patient. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Behold, we count those blessed who persevered or endured. So we are blessed if we persevere or persist in the spiritual life. James is a man who is concerned with grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. And we see that in his opening illustration. He says that he is a bondservant of God. And the Greek word there is not bondservant is not the best translation. It's the word, am I running out of space already here? I think we need to clean this up before Sunday. Is doulos. Doulos means a slave. He is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a slave. He, doesn't, he, uh, he rejected his, his uh, brother in his humanity his entire uh, life during his public ministry. James was not a believer until uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And, uh, but now he sees that he is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes the deity of Christ and that he is the Messiah and no longer counts on his human relations to the Lord, which shows his humility. James is is definitely oriented to grace and to doctrine and shows a tremendous deal of humility. He's not relying at all on any of his uh, physical connections. He addresses it to the twelve tribes. Now, these are the twelve tribes of Israel, so there's a certain Jewish flavor to this epistle. It also has a lot to do there are a lot of illustrations taken from nature in this epistle. And we'll see some of that. But there's a Jewish flavor to it. It's before a lot of church-age doctrine was written. And it's before a lot of it was revealed to the Apostle Paul. For example, in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, when we talk about the, uh, the materialistic usher, for if a man comes into your assembly, it doesn't talk about the church there. It's not if a man comes into your ecclesia. It's if a man comes into your synagogues, your synagogue. So it's before the the Christian church is really separated out of the synagogue and there's a very strong Jewish flavor to this entire epistle. So he's writing it to Jewish believers at this stage of the church. Almost all believers were Jewish who are dispersed. And the Greek word there for the dispersion is the word diaspora. D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A Diaspora, and that was a technical word to describe all of the Jews who lived outside the land of Judah and Palestine, uh, during the, the uh, time of the Roman Empire. And it still refers to them. They're part of the diaspora, part of the dispersion. All the Jews in North America, Europe, uh, Asia, Russia, Africa, wherever are all part of the diaspora. They are the scattered Jews who are no longer living in the land that God had promised to give them. And then he says, greetings. So we'll end the Bible class tonight in verse, with the end of verse 1 and take up the issue of trials, testing, adversity, and stress next Wednesday night in verse 2. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the lessons that are here in this epistle, the challenge before us to persist in the spiritual life not to give in to the outward pressures of adversity that constantly seek to derail us and distract us from making doctrine the highest priority in our lives. Father, it is our job and our task as your children, as members of the royal family of God, to pursue spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity so that you might be glorified. Father, we pray that as we study these things that they would be real to us, that we would appropriate them by faith, and that we would not succumb to our sin natures and uh, give up along the way, but that we would continue in steadfastness to endure to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.